You're listening to In the Thick of It, a podcast from the HCM Society, where we interview experts in the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy field to broaden the awareness of new HCM studies and advancements. On today's episode, Dr. Bradley Linder chats with Lisa Salberg, the founder of the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association, or HCMA. Since 1996, Lisa has been on a journey to educate, advocate, and support other patients based on her experience with HCM, including medical errors that nearly cost her life and the death of her sister. Let's get in the thick of it. Here's Dr. Linder. So the purpose of uh, today's podcast is to talk about necessary tools to build an HCM clinic. Before we get into that, I know most people in the HCM world probably at least know of you, but for people who may not know you, maybe you can introduce yourself and and tell us a little bit about how you got involved in the HCM space. I would love to. So my name is Lisa Salberg. I am the founder and CEO of the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association and also a board member of HCM Society. My family history with HCM goes back many, many years, decades, in the modern era, I would call it. My grandfather died of a cardiac arrest at 43 in 1953. His sister passed a few years later from a stroke. Um, My uncle was later diagnosed with HCM. My sister was diagnosed with HCM. My uncle passed away in 1990 from cardiac arrest. My sister passed away on the day we're recording this, June 16th, 1995, at, at, at the age of 36. My father succumbed to complications of HCM at 73. My daughter, niece, and nephew are all positive uh, for HCM genetically and clinically. I have cousins who are diagnosed, and I have other family members who are gene positive. I was diagnosed at 12. Uh, I had a stroke on this day in 1990. June 16th is not a good day. And um, I've gone on to have five implantable defibrillators, a myriad of medical therapies over the years, and finally a heart transplant on February 2nd, 2017. So uh, I come from a very long, complicated family history. And after my sister's death in 1995, I decided somebody ought to do something about this. And we started the organization in uh, 96 with the goals of not only raising awareness, but keeping patients safe as they receive treatment for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Uh, My sister didn't die of HCM in a general term. She died of mismanagement and complications. So we try to find ways to make that never happen to any other family. Well, um, you know, thanks for sharing your experience. I'm sorry to hear that so much of it has been traumatic. It's it's remarkable how much you and your organization have done over the past 25 years for for the community as a whole. And you know, who knows where we would be without your advocacy? It's not coming from a physician, surgeon, nurse. It's coming from a patient and her family. And your desire to make the condition um, more well known and to, to highlight the issues that go along with it. And, and it's and it's clear that it's a common disease. Most people think HCM is not common, but really we know that between one and 200 to one and 500, by some estimates, have HCM. Are there, are there issues with access to HCM care overall? So that's a big question, and I'm going to answer it in a slightly different way, but I'll get there. 
when we started our work, there were a handful of clinicians that really understood HCM. And when I say a handful, like five or six in the United States that really had comprehensive programs that they were building to treat HCM patients. They were not as multidisciplinary as they are today. They called in people when they needed to, but um, there was really no place for patients to go. So if you're going to go out and start a nonprofit organization and try to raise awareness about a disease, it doesn't do you very well if you don't have anybody who can take care of those people. So I like to say I built the triangle or the pyramid backwards. First, we had to build places for people to go to get good care where we knew that they would be safe mm-hmm. and they would have care that was appropriate, not too much, not too little, but just enough. And we had to build those up. So that took that took years to do. And I feel like after 27 years of building, we are now at the point in the past maybe year or so, we can really start getting out and talking about HCM more broadly and looking for those undiagnosed in a much more meaningful manner and aligning them with care as close to their home community as possible. When I started, we had hoped for a five-mile or five-hour drive for most Americans to get to care. Now I'm, you know, we're at a time where we have multiple centers within a city and you've got different health networks that you've got to con- consider when you're building up programming. But we're at a point now where we can actually maybe get most Americans care within a very reasonable distance from home. Mm-hmm. That's true. So we're getting better. We still have work to do. Uh, as of right now, the HCMA has recognized 48 centers of excellence, as we refer to them. Um, I'm very happy that in the 2020 guidelines, comprehensive and primary care models were evaluated as the standard of care for patients. We want them in those programs. And it's it's been an evolution. There's no two programs that are identical, um, but there are definitely some similarities in terms of the multidisciplinary approach, making sure we have great imaging. We know that that leads the the charge. Good interventional cardiology, good genetics input. Obviously, we need good surgeons. We need good advanced heart failure uh, team members so that we can get patients to transplant safely and on time. We need mental health professionals. We need maternal fetal health experts. We need to think about the entire continuum of health for those with HCM that goes beyond the physical heart. And that's what we've tried to build through HCMA centers of excellence with an eye towards health equity, not only for the patient community, but the clinicians involved in the program themselves. And none of it happens without the institution that it's housed in supporting those efforts. And we do not market our HCMA recognized center of excellence programming. People come to us and say, okay, I wanna build. And what do I need to do? So we start having conversations where people, working with people, trying to make the world a little bit better. It starts with conversations. So that that's a great overview. That's a great overview. Um, you know, we think about how, how do you start from the ground up to build an HCM program? How do you take an existing HCM program and make it better? And how do we use existing um, excellence center, you know, centers of excellence and, and make the surrounding or the feeding hospitals um, even stronger to, to increase access for patients of all types? So we've leaned very much into the hub and spoke modeling concept that if you are the center in your program, 
HCMA can work with you to raise awareness in your community in an unbranded manner. We have our HCM Academy program that we work with that can help train your community physicians on how to identify HCM and how to make those referrals in. Again, this is about relationship building. You want to be the trusted source in your community. So you want to have those really good communication pathways open. And sometimes it's better for us to be able to help there. HCMA can come in and maybe the society at some point as well as they grow to help that physician not look like they're being self-serving. It is what is best for patients to be treated in a high volume center where you're not one of a handful of people that that doctor has seen with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. You're one of a hundred or a thousand or 3000. And if you're one of that number as a patient, there's a higher likelihood they're going to understand you. We know the HCM phenotype can be confusing and complex. If a clinician out in the community only sees three patients with HCM in their practice, one's obstructed, one's apical, one's, you know, a traditional non-obstructed, they're managed differently. And we want to help them understand that. So by working with the community in that hub and spoke model, we can get there. We can also help train physicians, as you know, by working within the community, we want to help each other. We want to rise everybody up and give them the training. So working with your fellow programs across the country or across the state to share best practices, understanding how to operationalize an HCM program is a little different than some other programs that you'll run in a hospital. So we help people identify those pain points, create processes so that they can get them to work through the system that they're in, because no two systems are the same. And we're pretty good about pivoting and evaluating systems and helping figure out what works for the clinician, the institution, and most importantly, the patient. We can do it, and we have done it multiple times. Um, one of the biggest advances that we have in technology today is the use of electronic medical records, and we should be leaning into that more to help identify what patients are in your system. Have all patients been optimized in their care? Has everybody had their MRIs? Everybody had their genetic testing? Has everybody had a stress echo? And is it all up to date? And if it's not, then we can very easily get in there, bring the patient back in, optimize that care with the specialty care team, and make sure that that patient is not missing an opportunity at protection from sudden death or uh, uh, something that will assist them in uh, managing their symptoms. So we have we have systems that we can help uh, any anybody who wants to build a program. They should be calling up the HCMA and setting up a phone call to start talking it out and planning. Our process personally at the HCMA is to do a phone call to see where you're at, send you an application. We want to know all the players in the program. We want to understand the business model. We want to understand your insurance markets, the demographics, the catchment area. We want to know what you've already done and what you hope to do. And we can help you build up to whatever capacity your institution has the ability to grow to. We have programs that are a couple hundred. And we have several that are a couple thousand patient-wide. So we're happy to grow that network out. And I think it's going to be great working with HCM Society to figure out what those pathways are that we at HCMA can work with the society on and bring things further faster. And, and you mentioned the institutional support. 
which is obviously incredibly important for building any sort of program, let alone one like this, which requires multidisciplinary um, efforts and, and support. So what are the unique operational needs for a hospital or a health system in terms of building an HCM clinic that may differ from, let's say, a structural heart program, an EP program? Um, how, how have you managed that? I will be honest and tell you, nobody does it exactly the same. There, You have to figure out what works for your institution um, because we're structural and EP and interventional. We need that multidisciplinary approach. Depending upon the patient volume, you can either set up weekly meetings or twice a month meetings or monthly meetings, depending upon your volume with your entire team. So you want all players at the table, much like a transplant clinic would do a, a transplant evaluation, you need to have that great communication so that when you have a challenging case, I, I like to say it this way, but I mean it in the best way possible. I want you to be able to fight it out together. I want the interventionalist to give their point of view why they think this should be done. EP should have their input. Structural should have theirs. Advanced heart failure might need a, a voice in there. Genetics needs to come to the table. And then we need to be able to look at these families as a whole. And you have to look at the genetics and you have to look at the pedigrees and figure out what is happening in this family. You need to be able to see people together. So that means scheduling. Again, communication, communication. You need to make sure that you're communicating well and you have structure set in place so that that communication is not something that somebody might show up to as a meeting. They know they're expected there and it's part of their part of their month. Um, sometimes as the programs grow and it's a bit more nimble, you may not need as many of those meetings. It may you know, become a little bit more obvious as to how you're going to manage things. But in the beginning, everybody gets a voice. It's what's best for the patient. There's not one answer anymore. It's getting more complex. And we want to make sure that patients have the best opportunity at getting the best care possible in the safest way possible. We like to say that when uh, when the decisions are tough, the best thing to do, like you said, is is to load the boat, get more opinions, get get more specialties, and and make sure that as a group, as a multidisciplinary group, we can do what's right for the patient. And it's proven out over time. Um, I'm of an age, which makes me feel really old to even say I'm of an age. You know, I've watched what happened at the NIH when they were a great program. And then that folded, and then we started working more with some larger institutions. And I've watched smaller institutions come up, be creative, develop systems. It matters that you take into consideration what we already know and experience of those clinicians who have given so much to HCM. And then we take what's new and innovative and integrate that. We're never going to get rid of that underpinning of understanding the anatomy and physiology of HCM, understanding risk, but we're going to get better at defining new risk factors. We're going to use new technologies. We're going to use new minds, young minds that are going to think about things a little bit differently. And we're going to continue to evolve as a community. And the most important thing I think we can do for each other is to continue to communicate and grow together. And you have a, you have a lot of interaction with with patients and their families, um, and that's one part of the equation. The other part of the equation is the physicians, the institutions. 
from a, a patient's perspective, what do they tell you that they want from, from their HCM clinics, from their HCM centers? They want a lot of things. Um, sometimes they want things that might not be realistic, but the majority of people want one-stop shopping. If they're going to come to see you, it's, it's an endeavor. Most of them are not driving across town. They're driving across a state. So they want to be able to be seen in a day or two. They want to be able to have their family seen collectively. Mm -hmm. They want to have their imaging scheduled and all of their testing scheduled so they know what the day is going to hold. And they want honest answers and feedback. Um, they want their reports. They want details in their reports. Because when you get community-based imaging done and other types of testing in the community, you may not be getting a complete comprehensive understanding of what's going on with that heart. So they want to understand the records. They want access. They want to understand their options. They want to understand why not some options. You know, people would love to have the most non-invasive thing done possible to solve the problem. But if their anatomy doesn't allow that to be a reality, they need to understand what the reasons are for and against the particular procedure. Um, they want to be supported. This is a big challenge. Cardiologists as a whole think about the heart and we try to think about the people. We need more mental health services within this space. If you go into other spaces, there's mental health embedded. Transplant has mental health embedded. Cancer has mental health embedded. We don't have it. We get a pat on the back and, oh, you have a genetic heart disease that will never go away and could impact the rest of your family. And, oh, by the way, sudden death is a reality. Have a nice day. Go back to work. That doesn't seem really like we're doing enough to take care of the psyche of the patient and understand that this is a very large burden for these families to carry. And many of the families are like mine, where it's generational. And what happens to me today is one thing, but what's going to happen with my family members tomorrow could be something very different. Um, we're kind of always walking on eggshells when you're living with HCM. And when patients are coming to the clinic, they may also, I'm going to let you in on a little secret here. They don't know how they feel. They only know the heart that they have and the life that they're living. They don't know what normal is. I have a unique perspective because I had HCM with obstruction. I had non-obstructed HCM because of my obstruction just went away after my endocarditis. And I've had a transplant. And I know what it's like to have a, a normal heart. And I know what it was like to live a life with an HCM heart. You have no idea how bad you feel. And if you asked me five years before my transplant, how was I? I would have told you I was fine. And many of your patients will tell you they're fine. They don't know. They're not trying to lie to you, but they don't know what reality should be. So we don't always know how badly we are feeling. And that aha moment that we're feeling bad may come as a shock to us. So we need our teams to know that. And patients need you to bring their attention to that. They won't say it out loud up front, but after years of talking to these people, that's really what they want. What do what? What is normal? What are my expectations? I know we talk a lot about shared decision-making, but a patient can only participate in shared decision-making if they have the knowledge and the ability to make decisions based on that information. 
So HCMA steps in and we do lots of educational symposium. We do one a month. We have discussion groups. We have things that we can do to prepare the patient for that visit and that encounter. We have one-on-one navigation calls we'll do. Our job is to prepare them to meet with you and for us to prepare them for meeting you and you to meet them. So it's this communication again. It's all about talking to each other and making sure we understand what each other is looking for. And and those are fantastic points. And it's a lot to digest there. Um, But like you were saying, transplant usually has access to mental health professionals. um, But it it seems like it's a symptom or, or a representative of healthcare as a whole right now, where despite the importance of mental health care provider involvement, there uh, are not enough of them and patients don't have access to them. Like exactly like you were saying, these are patients who have a risk of sudden death in some circumstances. They have symptoms which limit their ability to function in some circumstances. And there's a burden of, did I get this from a family member? Am I going to give it to a family member? I'm young. I'd like to have kids. You know, should I disclose it to my significant other? And these are all things that that can't be unpacked in a 15 minute uh, typical office visit. How how do you counsel um, hospitals, institutions, centers on the value that these building an HCM clinic brings when these visits cannot be done in 15 or 30 minutes if you're doing a good job? Number one, we ask that the institution understand that these appointments are probably going to go longer than a 15 or 20 minute and that they give the clinician and the team time to go through everything that needs to be unpacked. Um, Because patients are typically traveling in from a distance, these appointments are known to go one, two, even three hours. They're long. They're complicated. You have to talk about the structure of the heart. And that can take forever. And then you have to talk about the rhythm issues. That could take forever. Then you have to talk about genetics. And that can take forever. And each of them are hard to process. It's a lot of new data. Not every patient understands they have a conduction system or even how the heart actually functions if it were normal. So there's a lot of education that goes on there. And then there's a lot of that aha moment. Oh, this is what happened to grandma. This is what happened to uncle, aunt, cousin. You're putting the pieces together in those first couple of appointments. The first two years are very difficult for an HCM patient. After that, we start to kind of learn the walk a little bit more. And even if we're taken aback by a change, I was surprised when I found out I needed a heart transplant. And I think I'm pretty well educated on the topic. (laughs) So denial is real, even if you're an educated patient. So I think um, explaining to your institution that these are complex patients um, is is critically important. But the the value I truly feel that the HCMA has been able to provide in this space is we support those patients too, not instead of you, with you through a different mechanism. We have peer-to-peer patient discussion groups No patient should ever be more than a couple of hours away from being able to jump into a Zoom call and see other patients. We have social media. We have an office here with with 10 employees who are ready to provide services and support and sometimes just listen when somebody's having a bad day. I can't do it alone. You can't do it alone. But together, we can make it a little easier for these families 
to get through these questions and, and interact with their chosen healthcare provider at the highest level possible. And we're going to build institutions that are based in science, knowledge, research. We're going to use all of the known tools and we're going to try to create new ones together, which takes the institution supporting you. If you don't have the office space, the equipment up to date, the access to genetic testing and potentially genetic therapies at some point, maybe, how are you going to provide the services to the patient community? You're not. So we want to optimize that by, by working together. We don't have to be fancy and, and spend tons of money on things that aren't necessary to have. We can be creative and how can we share? You can share with the transplant mental health team. A lot of the issues are the same. Yes, it does require a little bit more money, but wow, will those patients do better? And they're not going to constantly be calling back with, I felt a palpitation. What do I do? You're going to have a mechanism to help them understand when to call, who to call, how to deal with an emergency, what's an emergency. But that takes a lot of time and education. And, and down the road, if, if certain patients need a transplant, they will be well known to the, to the transplant team, to the mental health team years in advance because transplants in HCM don't typically come on emergently. Um, and so it gives a few years to, to build that relationship. Typically about six, unless you stay in denial for five and a half of them. <laughs> like I so, so, so if we are to um, kind of hone in on some of the details and the take home points for the audience, what do you think are the three, four, five most important points for building an HCM program? You first and foremost need a passionate director. And if you want to be a director of an HCM program, there's a lot of clinical involvement, but there's also organizational. You need to understand how to bring this team together, how to coordinate these multidisciplinary meetings, and to make sure everybody understands their role. So that's probably the biggest thing that will be a win or a lose for a program. You got to get the institution to back your vision. You have to bring a good team together. Good teams do not happen overnight. You need a mix of personalities. And I do encourage you to think diversity while you're building your team. We need men. We need women. We need every color of person there is. We need early career. We need late career. We need to bring together all of these skill sets and individuals and cultural differences so that the patient is really heard when they come in. And if one member of the team isn't hearing them, the other one will pick up those subtle signals because they come from a similar community. We need to make patients feel that they are heard as to who they are. So the key is passion and organization. And with passion and organization, we're going to do great things. Um, the other is partnership. You will never succeed as, a, as an island. You will work with the society. You will work with the HCMA. You will work with other professional organizations. And you will work with your patients in a really cool way. We bring patients together with the clinicians in social circles as well. We want you all to know each other as people. Yes, there's professions involved. And yes, there's, there's the ability to communicate professionally. 
but nothing compares to making human connection. We need these programs for the entirety of our lives, of our, indi our individual lives and our families' lives. So we need sustainable modeling that's going to be there in a consistent manner year after year, decade after decade. And our health institutions are going to house that. So it's important that we're working collaboratively. Those are really amazing words of wisdom, not just for HCM centers, um, but just for building successful clinical programs in general. Um, my, my experience has been in, in the HCM space, so I know what works for us. Um, by, by nature of my occupation prior to this, I was a human resource manager and health plan administrator, so I can have arguments with myself all day long. I don't actually ever seem to win them, but I can discuss it <laughs> a lot. You know, I, I don't even have to ask most of the questions. I think you touched on a lot of the really important points for, for this subject just um, naturally because you've been involved in building so many programs. I think you mentioned 40, 45, 48 programs at this we point. Have two applications pending um, board review, and that will bring us to the magical number of 50. Congratulations. Thank you. It's, it's been a journey. It's been a real journey, and it's, it's really rewarding work when it, when it clicks together. Um, building these communities, building these teams, being able to work with them for many, many years, um, it's been great. And the patients love it. The patients, the patients guide what our next asks are of a center. Like we didn't used to talk about maternal fetal health. Now we do. We didn't used to talk about um, genetics as much. Obviously, we do now. We didn't used to talk about um, mental health services. We do now. And I'm sure there's, we didn't talk about health equity. We do now. We're, we, we have to stay modern. We have to keep up with technology. We have to keep up with the needs of the community. And if we keep talking, we'll keep doing it. Fantastic. Well, um, Lisa, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, I'm sure we'll have many more conversations over the next number of years between the HCMA and the HCM Society, um, personally, professionally. Um, thanks for talking to us today on a day that you've explained is challenging for you and for your family. Um, and, and thanks for your inspiration for, for building future programs to help other families like yours. Thanks for having me, and I look forward to not only being an active member of the board of the HCM Society, but finding those ways that HCM Society and HCMA are going to take our power together and do really great things. That was Dr. Bradley Linder and Lisa Salter. For more information on HCMA, visit 4hcm.org. This episode was edited and produced by EarFluence. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon on In the Thick of It.